Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 221, Alfred and Guthrum, The Price of Peace. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and it costs about the price of a pint per month. And thank you very much to Andrew, Jennifer, and Sarah for signing up already. When we left off, Guthrum had marched into the heart of Wessex without being noticed. He led his forces right past Alfred's hold in Winchester, and he seized the royal ton of Wareham. In response to this, Alfred raised the Ferd, marched upon the southern port town, and besieged it. Now, all of our surviving sources are silent on how long this siege lasted. Alfred might have tried to end it quickly, but it's just as likely that he and his army camped on the edge of Wareham for a very long time, and Guthrum's army might have been running low on supplies. Looking at the record, our best guess is that the siege lasted until winter, and only came to a conclusion at either the end of 876 or in early 877. But this is one of those details that we'll never really know for sure. But eventually, negotiations were opened, and Alfred stated that he would pay a Danegeld in exchange for Guthrum's promise to leave Wessex and establish an everlasting peace with Alfred. He added that, in order to ensure this bargain, Guthrum had to provide the West Saxon king with high-status hostages and swear upon Christian relics and his own arm ring that he would uphold the bargain. It was a big ask, especially when you consider who he was asking it of. Guthrum was not a man to be trifled with. In seizing Wareham so quickly, he demonstrated that he was both a powerful warlord and also one who had a terrifying understanding of military strategy. In fact, the audacity of this strike had clearly set back Alfred on his heels in front of both his own nobles and also his Danish rivals. Alfred's negotiating position was, frankly, pretty weak. And over the last decade, these Danes had repeatedly shown that they weren't just capable warriors, they were also tough negotiators, and they would dig in at a moment's notice. And based upon the stories that were undoubtedly circulating following the conquests of East Anglia and Northumbria, Alfred had to have expected at least a little bit of pushback. Furthermore, the Dane that Alfred had the most experience with, Halfdan, had fought him tooth and nail for months before he'd even consider leaving Wessex. And the nearby kingdom of East Anglia had been conquered by Ivor the Boneless in such a fearsome way that it was inspiring sagas. And yet, when Alfred asked Guthrum to swear upon Christian relics, he did so. When Alfred asked that he swear upon his own arm ring, which the Chronicle notes was the first time that anything like this had ever been done, he did so. Even when Alfred started selecting various high-ranking Danes to be taken as hostages, Guthrum obliged. In fact, based upon what Asser tells us, Guthrum doesn't seem to have even made any objection to the number of hostages, nor who was selected. Whatever Alfred wanted, it would be given. This Guthrum seemed to be cut from a different cloth. It was a remarkable turn of events, 
And perhaps these Northmen were losing their taste for war. Or if you were interpreting these events like an Anglo-Saxon, or perhaps even like Alfred himself, you might think that God was finally interceding on the behalf of Wessex. Whatever it was, having such an agreeable Danish counterpart would have felt like the dawning of spring. And thanks to Alfred's demands, he knew that it wouldn't just be the god of the West Saxons who would be watching over this oath, but also the gods of the Danes. At long last, the tide was turning. The agreement was completed, and then night fell, and the Ferd were out there waiting in their camps. And frankly, it's not out of the question that there would have been some celebrating going on that evening. The war was over and they wouldn't have to risk their lives fighting against these Northmen. They could instead, at last, go home to their families. Well, they could once the order was given. For now, they'd have to wait. But this, at the very least, would be cause to break out some mead. Their job was done. And as these farmers turned warriors drank to their good fortune, and as Alfred sat in his tent possibly patting himself on the back for doing such a good job at pacifying these pagans. Guthrum was stalking through the streets and fields of Wareham for one last time, and preparing his next move. His army was no stranger to stealth. They had marched all the way through Wessex to get here in the first place. They knew how to remain undetected, and honestly, sneaking through hostile territory was part of the job description. Every man here was a Vikinger, and now was the perfect time to move. The West Saxons had definitely dropped their guard following this agreement, and they were probably partying like it was 799. By doing this, Alfred had given him a gift, and Guthrum wasn't going to refuse it. So, he set to work, discussing strategy with his advisors organizing his forces, and likely issuing a special order for his most experienced scouts. Thanks to Wareham's ramparts and the cover of night, no one in the West Saxon camp could see what Guthrum was up to. And eventually, as the evening dragged on, everyone would have settled down to rest. Everyone but Alfred's Night's Watch and the Danes. We don't know how it started. Perhaps someone heard the rustle of fabric and leather. Maybe a guard's attention was caught by the sound of footsteps or an unfamiliar shadow. Maybe there wasn't any warning whatsoever until the horses started screaming. What we're told is that in the middle of the night, Guthrum's army sallied out of the walls of Wareham, and they hurtled past the Ferd of Wessex, riding hard to the west. Asser tells us that their forces slew all the horsemen of Wessex, which some translators and scholars have taken to mean that they slew all the Ferd's horses. We don't know exactly what they mean by this phrase, but there are a few likely possibilities. The first is that as Guthrum's army charged forward, Alfred's cavalry responded, and the Vikingers slaughtered them in battle. However, there wasn't any language that discussed a battle. Instead, we just hear of the horsemen, and only the horsemen, which probably meant the horses being slain. And that raises the possibility of something else happening here. Specifically, that Guthrum's army might have behaved like the Vikinger army that it was. 
What if Guthrum ordered a detachment of talented scouts to leave the walls of Wareham and creep up to the encamped West Saxons and then wait for a signal? Guthrum's army sallying out of the gates of Wareham on horseback would have been plenty of signal. And in the chaos of that moment, the scouts would only have to loose a few volleys of arrows at the penned-up horses before escaping into the night with the rest of the army. Personally, I think that's what I would do. But however it happened, in the blink of an eye, Guthrum's entire army was loose in the countryside on horseback. We're never told exactly how they got the horses, but they likely got them from the raiding and looting that had been done before the siege. Regardless, Guthrum had shown in this whole situation, and he will show it again before we're done with his story, that he took the time to study and understand the culture of the Anglo-Saxons. He knew when they marched, he knew what symbols and holidays were important to them, he knew how they made dangels and deals, and he knew how the Anglo-Saxons considered these deals semi-sacred. Alfred, on the other hand, clearly didn't fully understand Scandinavian culture nor the man he was up against. This wasn't some minor captain who could be swayed with treasure. This was Guthrum, and he had bigger plans than simply a Danegeld. He wanted a kingdom. He wanted Wessex, and I'm sure that it amused him to no end that this Christian king was so naive. I mean, granted, Alfred did know enough that Guthrum wouldn't be impressed by Christian relics and rituals, and he knew that Guthrum didn't share the cultural belief that the presence of such relics would make an oath inviolate. However, where Alfred went wrong was in assuming that the Danes had a similar relationship with the symbols of their gods. The ironic thing about all of this is that the Christians were more into idolatry than the Northmen. I mean, sure, the Northmen did have magic and they had symbols of their gods. But we don't see anything in the record that can compare with the raw fervor that the Christians of this period put into relics. For example, we don't read of cults venerating the preserved finger of Olaf and carrying out special rituals in reverence to it. The Christians, on the other hand, were so into that behavior that you half expect to see wills including a clause stating whether or not Unferth or Hilda were donating their bodies to the church. So Guthrum swearing upon his arm ring, even if it was associated with Thor like many assume it was, would have been largely meaningless to him in all likelihood. And consequently, I imagine that Guthrum was trying to keep from laughing in the middle of this swearing ceremony. It would be like if I asked you to swear upon your socks. You might do it if you wanted to make that deal with me, but it's not like your socks would provide some sort of magical bond that would keep you from backing out later. It just kind of sounds silly. The other mistake that Alfred made is in assuming that Guthrum would care about the hostages the same way that Alfred might. Wessex was a fairly unique kingdom in Britain during this period, because the vast majority of power in that kingdom was held by one family. So if Guthrum asked Alfred for highborn hostages and got to select whoever he wanted, it wouldn't be all that long before he'd find one of Alfred's cousins or an uncle, or a nephew. Another pillar that kept Alfred in power were the bonds of loyalty and fealty that he formed with his nobles, and that was often done through the Anglo-Saxon practice of ritual gift-giving and politicking. Stabilizing your kingdom and ensuring that your nobles would support you was expensive and time-consuming work. And so even if a noble wasn't a direct family member, and even if Alfred didn't like that person very much, 
It's likely that Alfred still had too much invested in that noble to want to risk losing him. After all, we can be reasonably certain that the nobles who were present at those negotiations were his most loyal supporters, because they were the eldermen and thanes who responded to Alfred's call for help. Furthermore, there was a long cultural tradition of hostage exchanges, and everyone in Britain knew the rules of the game. In fact, pretty much everyone in the western kingdoms and territories knew them. There might be cultural differences between groups of people, and there might be a history of war between kingdoms. But nobles were nobles, and so they sought to protect each other. We've seen it over and over again. Oswald and his brothers living in exile with the Picts. Alfred's own grandfather living in exile with Charlemagne. Mercia harboring Northumbrians and vice versa. And we've seen hostage exchanges go in pretty much every direction possible on this little island. This practice was so respected and kind of normalized that when Oswiu ignored the fact that his son was a hostage and held by Queen Chinawiza, and he went and fought Mercia anyway, that was a really shocking development. And so in Britain, just like swearing on a relic, hostages meant that a bond couldn't be broken. But here's the thing. Guthrum wasn't Anglo-Saxon, and we're not even sure if he was a noble. He appeared pretty much out of nowhere, and he didn't make any sort of lineage claim to a major figure like Ragnar. All we know is once in Cambridge, he quickly consolidated his power base, and he was now the sole leader of this army of Vikings. We don't know how he did it. We don't know where he came from. We just know that he was a Vikinger who was now leading an army. And here's the thing about Vikinger armies. They don't work like nation-states. These guys were pirates. If they had a tagline for their anti-hero action trilogy, it would be, what have you done for me lately? We have plenty of examples of Vikinger armies switching leaders, and even breaking up entirely when they felt like it might suit their needs. So why would Guthrum really care all that much if some of his subordinate captains were taken hostage? Why would he care all that much if they were killed? It's unlikely that the leadership in his army had the same familial connections that the House of Wessex had spent generations building. And as for wanting to protect his underlings, well, don't forget that only one year earlier, his army had three kings, and now he was the last one standing. It's possible that, rather than creating an incentive to want to protect the lives of the hostages, Alfred just handed Guthrum a gift by taking potential rivals out of his army, possibly forever. And while Asser doesn't explicitly tell us what became of those hostages, he does note that Guthrum cared nothing for the lives of them, which carries a pretty heavy implication that Alfred did with them what he said he would, and they were killed. So everything was coming up Guthrum right now. And now, the Danes were racing west as fast as their horses could take them. The Chronicle says that Alfred and his men rode hard after them, but they couldn't catch up. And that suggests to me that what Asser says was true, and that a good number of the horses were killed when Guthrum escaped. And the time that it took the king to gather more horses gave the Danes the head start that they needed. As Alfred was gathering horses... And as he, his hearthward, and any other mounted warbands that he could find chased after Guthrum, I wonder what Alfred was thinking about. Given the portrait that we're given of him, 
and what we can discern of the personality of this actual human being. I get the sense that Alfred might have spent this ride turning the events over in his mind, trying to divine the purpose of it all. Why had Guthrum taken Wareham? Why had he come to terms and provided hostages only to immediately break the agreement? Why was he riding west rather than northeast, back to the Danish-occupied territories? Where was he going? Why was he doing any of this? I imagine that those questions plagued him as he doggedly pursued Guthrum for over 70 miles. Until finally, they hit Exeter. And then, Alfred didn't have to wonder so much anymore. It seems that Guthrum had in mind to extend his holiday and stay in another southern town. And like Wareham, this one was also built upon the bank of a river and accessible by sea. Also like Wareham, this one could be easily fortified and was completely unprepared for a land-based attack, especially one carried out by a mounted Vikinger horde. So Guthrum and his men stormed the city and immediately set about fortifying their new home. So now, at least Alfred knew where they were going, and as he rode within view of the fortifications, he would have immediately realized that it would be impossible to dislodge them with just his mounted cavalry. Alfred would have to wait for the rest of the Ferd to catch up, and he'd have to watch helplessly as Guthrum improved the town's defenses. The day or two wait would have been incredibly depressing, though when the Ferd eventually arrived, that would have been a comfort. However, despite the size of the Ferd, it was clear that they wouldn't be able to easily retake Exeter. Alfred had just exchanged one siege for another and he paid a Danegeld for the privilege. This was frighteningly similar to the situation that his brother-in-law, Burgred, had found himself before abandoning the throne of Mercia. Things were looking bad, and then scouts spotted longships off the West Saxon coast. And then more ships were spotted. And then more ships. Alfred's worst nightmare was coming true. The horizon darkened as 120 longships came into view. For reference, the famed Spanish Armada was 130 ships, so only 10 ships more. This was a gargantuan fleet. It's not clear whether this force was part of a planned strike, and whether that was the reason why Guthrum was at Wareham in the first place, or whether this was reinforcements because Guthrum had managed to sneak out a few messengers past enemy lines during the chaos of the escape. But however it was arranged... Reinforcements were now on the way, and they were headed up the coast of Wessex. What Alfred had been struggling with was just the advanced force for something far larger. And he must have been wondering where exactly they were headed. Were they going to join Guthrum at Exeter, or were they looking to open a second front? Perhaps by landing at the recently abandoned ton of Wareham. It's hard to say which would have been the worst option for Alfred. Supporting Guthrum's army at Exeter might give these Northmen the strength they needed to break the West Saxon siege. However, landing somewhere to the east could be just as effective, if not more so. By racing out of Wessex and leading Alfred on a chase to Exeter, Guthrum had put Alfred into a situation where all of his options were bad. And by staying in Exeter, he was running the risk of being caught in a vice. The West Saxon king would have to choose whether to deal with Guthrum and his army in Exeter, or raced eastward to wherever the Viking fleet was planning on landing, 
and he didn't even know where they were going. This was so much worse than Alfred could have imagined. And true, Alfred had won a battle only a few years earlier, but that was against a Viking fleet of seven ships. 120 ships is something completely different. How could they possibly hope to stop that? And once that fleet landed, assuming that the longships were of a typical size, there would be an army of over 3,000 warriors to contend with on top of Guthrum's forces. This was the end of Wessex. However, this gambit was also risky for the Vikings. Sailing around Britain without modern meteorological guidance can be treacherous at the best of times. We've already seen the Capricious Island weather wreck one of Caesar's fleets back in the first century BCE, and he was campaigning in summer. Conversely, based upon the timing of the Chronicle's entries, it looks like it was winter by the time that Guthrum broke for Exeter. So not exactly the best time to be sailing this close to land. And as the fleet approached Pool Harbor, as they were nearly within sight of Wareham, they were caught in what the Chronicle calls a great mist. It was a thick, impenetrable fog, and it couldn't have come at a more dangerous time. The fleet were now unable to see where they were going, or where the rest of the fleet were, or much of anything else. And through that muted sound that only fog can produce, they would have heard the hulls grinding against rock, ships crashing into one another, wood snapping, warriors shouting, and the distinct sound of people falling into water. All of this would have sounded soft and strangely quiet and very far away, until you were right on top of it, and it was too late to do anything. In a matter of moments, a Scandinavian fleet that rivaled the one that brought the great army, a fleet that was so large and so well-timed that it stood a very good chance of breaking the King of Wessex, was reduced to splinters off the shore of Swanage, just by fog. Men, weapons, armor, everything would have fallen into the sea. And those that survived the wreck and managed to swim in the right direction through the fog, would have found themselves disoriented, probably alone, and almost certainly unarmed and unarmored in hostile territory. The fleet that may have changed the entire history of Britain ended before it even began. This was, of course, welcome news for Alfred. However, it didn't solve his immediate problem. I mean, sure, he wouldn't have to deal with a mega army or two large armies causing havoc throughout his kingdom like some terrifying Viking Voltron. But Guthrum still remained in his kingdom. And he managed to dig himself into Exeter so well that Alfred wouldn't be able to get him out without running the risk of losing a large portion of his army. The fact of the matter was that Exeter was locked up tight and Alfred just couldn't get in. All he could do is position his fur to ensure that Guthrum couldn't get out either. This stalemate continued throughout the winter, but eventually the rations must have started to get a little thin. Or maybe as the months dragged on, it became clear that reinforcements weren't coming. Whatever caused it, a message was sent out seeking terms. Asser doesn't tell us what happened next, 
But can you imagine the look on Alfred's face as he informed Guthrum of the fate of the Great Fleet? And given the nature of this era, and the fact that this happened on the heels of an oath made upon Christian relics, you have to wonder how Guthrum interpreted all this. I'm sure the West Saxons would want to make every effort to establish this as divine retribution and proof of the strength of their god. Because why not? But I wonder if Guthrum was buying it. One thing that I can be sure of, though, is that he knew he overplayed his hand. He was stuck in Exeter. He wasn't going to get out unless Alfred let him out. And if he didn't fix this soon, it was only a matter of time before his hungry and probably angry army turned on him. So, they came to terms. And the Chronicle tells us that Guthrum, quote, gave him as many hostages as he required, swearing with solemn oaths to observe the strictest amity, end quote just like he did last time. Only this time, Guthrum did seem to keep up his side of the bargain. Perhaps he didn't want to run afoul of this English god who had sent that terrible fog. Whatever it was, Guthrum decided that it was time to leave Wessex. So he and his remaining forces packed up their things and marched out of Exeter. They continued their march, heading northeast for quite some time. And all the while, I'm sure that the West Saxon bird kept close tabs on him. Until finally, at last, the army of Guthrum crossed into Mercia. Now they would be someone else's problem. At least for now. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Join us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by looking at the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This ain't no place for-